Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercane.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Shining, Part 2, Closing Day. Let's start the show. The Torrance family travels to the Overlook Hotel, where the staff is preparing to close the hotel for the winter. While Ullman continues to be officious, the cook, Dick Halloran, is an immediate hit with the family. He takes a particular shine to Danny, and Halloran gives Danny some information about his powers, along with some warning about the hotel. After Ullman gives the Torrances a tour of the hotel, with a capital H, the custodian, Watson, provides some tips to Jack. Finally, the staff leaves, and the Torrances are left alone at the Overlook. Seems like I write all my book recaps so that they can (laughs) end with that. (laughs) Well, Sean, as you may know, the title of this book is The Shining. And... There is a chapter in this section of the book called The Shining. So I thought we should talk about The Shining. And the reason why I want to do that is because it's going to be an important part of this whole story, I'm sure. But this is where we sort of learn what this magical power that Danny has, what it means, what it can kind of do, um, maybe some of its limits. And uh, I just wanted to sort of call out that King does such a wonderful job of exposition here. And he does it by introducing this character of Halloran and of building on the the wonderful character of Danny and using their exchange to completely flesh out what The Shining is all about. At, At no point did I stop to think, here we go with the exposition, here we go with the explanation. I was just enjoying the hell out of Halloran and Danny talking to each other. Yeah, it could in lesser hands very much have been an info dump. I, I'm sort of imagining like reading a comic book and just seeing like one character with like this giant word balloon, like explaining all their powers. And it's just like, uh, this is terrible. And like you said, it's because of the interaction between Halloran, an older African American man, with Danny, a young white kid who would have nothing else in common, probably, except for this connection over their shared power, which Halloran has given a name to called the shine that his grandmother had given it. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's able to just sort of explain to Danny, like, here's probably some of the feelings you have. Here's how it works and what you can do with it. And how do you see it? And how do you use it? And how does it impact your life? And it's just done so naturally that as a reader, you don't realize like you're just getting this like what could be a very boring info dump, and instead you're getting something that's building on their characterization while also giving you the important plot points that you need to understand what's going to be, like you said, important in the rest of the book. Yeah. And even though King doesn't invent the idea of like these types of mental powers, uh, like it's precognition and uh, what, what are some of the others that we've encountered? Telepathy. Telepathy, right? Yep. Maybe even a little bit of uh, precognition. Is that what you said at the beginning? Yeah, I said precognition. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, precogni- <laughs> I precognitioned your precognition right you there. You accepted it into my head. That's right. 
King just does such a splendid job of setting up what he defines the shining to mean in this book. He's taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that from other works of fiction, if you will, other works of psychokinesis and, and things like that, right? Um, pop science. And he's turning it into a very specific definition of what Halloran and Danny can do. And only those two people in this story can do. And we had already gotten a sense of it from Danny from his chapters in part one. There was the story of when Jack had lost his writing and Danny knew exactly where it was in the basement. As part of that, mm -hmm. we've seen him also be able to tell other things with his mind powers. The nice thing about this section is how Halloran doesn't just dump it on Danny, like, hey, I want to talk to you about something and then tell him all this. There's these hints during their tour where you see this connections being built up between Halloran and Danny, and they know each other's names or nicknames. So Halloran mm -hmm. calls Danny Doc. Danny knows Halloran's first name is Dick. Um, the fact that Allman takes a liking to Danny, even though it doesn't seem like he's the type of person who would like kids. Or even anybody. Or, or anybody. <laughs> and so we see how there's the, this buildup of, of these hints between these characters, like, okay, we could see that Danny's special in some way, and Halloran has recognized it. So it's not just a surprise when Halloran takes Danny into the car and explains all this, because we've already seen it a little bit. And even to some extent, Wendy and Jack sense that, right? Like, did, did, did he mention his name was Dick? How did mm -hmm. they, and, and they know Danny's a little special in some way. So like they're sharing these like looks between themselves, but they don't know the extent of what it, and what it is. So all that's really well done by King, I think is the point that we're getting to. It could have been very boring and very poorly done. And I'm sure you've probably seen it in other books where this type of thing is done poorly. And I think it was done really well here. I agree. That's a good point to transition to our next topic, which is the players, the main characters of this section, and really of just about the whole book, and that's the family. And we do get Halloran's perspective on mm. because he shares this power of the shining. He can, to less of a degree than Danny, but he can kind of see into the minds of others and get a sense of who they are, what makes them tick. And the first person who he attempts to make this connection with is Jack. And to Halloran, Jack is a black box. Like, he can't see anything. Yeah. It's just a hard wall. And this is an unusual or seems to be an unusual experience for Halloran. He usually can get some read of some kind. And it made me kind of wonder about what's going on with Jack. I don't suspect that Jack also has some sort of bit of the shine. I think that there's just something that is... There's something to Jack where he's closing himself off so completely that even somebody like Halloran can't see past his blockade. And I wonder if it's about like some kind of pre-existing madness or, or stress or, or something's going on with Jack because the line is, Halloran had probed at the boy's father. It wasn't like meeting someone who had the shine or someone who definitely did not. Poking at Danny's father had been strange. It was as if Jack Torrance had something he was holding in so deeply submerged in himself that it was impossible to get to. So what is this something that Jack's holding in? I don't know, but it raises a lot of questions. Yeah, you had mentioned like maybe it's some sort of pre-existing madness. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if it was that or if Jack's alcoholism, which he's trying to not let run him, if that's put up this barrier there. Mm -hmm. And that's what Halloran is having a problem getting through. We've also heard in part one that Jack 
has this pride and maybe that's some sort of blocker. So I like the line that you said, because it does indicate like there's something about Jack here. Yeah. And what one of those things it is, I'm not sure, but I think madness is a possibility. I think those other things I had mentioned could be as well, but it, like you said, I think black box is a perfect way of looking at it. Like I just can't get in there. And we know that Halloran's shine is not as powerful as Danny's. Right. He actually shows Halloran that, right? Like he pulls it back, but even so it's like Halloran getting punched when, when Danny throws his power out. But we know Danny can read his father, right? He's mm -hmm. seen suicide. He's seen divorce. And he knows that his father has these feelings that he might not be showing. But the fact that Halloran can't get in there is another way of showing the difference between those two characters, Danny and Halloran, and, and their different powers. Yeah. In addition to Jack, we see more about Wendy in this section. And Wendy's, Wendy's mood seems to change a lot uh, in the little bit that we've gotten to know her. We had all those flashbacks where she wants to divorce Jack, but she's in love with him and blah, blah, blah. And now she sees the Overlook as this opportunity to perhaps save the family in some way, right? Like mm -hmm. she she thinks of it like this is a potential family honeymoon. Like this will be a time for us yeah. to reconnect and, and get back together. And when she first gets to the hotel, she's not sure of it. Like it sort of freaks her out a little bit. But then as Halloran gives her the tour, she feels a little bit better. Like, oh, look, we've got all this food. We've got a nice room. This might not be so bad. He makes he makes her feel good. But then in this section, we get this interesting perspective that she feels like she's being left out or excluded from Jack and Danny's relationship. She knows that Danny worships his father and has this connection that she, even as the mother of Danny, doesn't seem to have with the kid. And she's worried that maybe their time together at the hotel is going to further exclude her and that this, I don't want to call it a love triangle, but that this triangle is weighted more heavily towards Jack and Danny. Yeah. Uh, love triangle is not the right word, but there is a, a triangle here, if you will. And I think that Wendy has more than once observed that Danny has a closer bond to his father than to his mother. And that hurts her feelings. And I think that's understandable. I imagine any parent would wonder, why, why does my child favor my spouse more than me? And I think it's maybe especially acute for her because she has seen the darkness in her husband. She has seen the actual abuse that he's inflicted upon Danny in breaking his arm and some of the other outbursts over the years. But Danny always runs to his father first. Mm -hmm. It never makes her feel great. And it is exacerbated by the fact that now they are alone in this hotel. Mm. And I think that that's when it dawns on her, you know, when they have these opportunities to overlook the area that they're in and realize, oh crap, it's just the three of us. There's one road that leads out of here that we're not going to be able to use pretty soon. And it's going to be the three of us stuck here. And not that they're going to turn against me, but that I'm going to be left out in some way. Mm -hmm. And that would wear on a person. And, and I think she's realizing that for the first time, which is, a, is an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And the final player I want to talk about is Danny himself. Just to say, he seems to be really excited about being here at the Overlook, but he also is already scared. He's scared about what Tony has been warning him about. He's scared about what Halloran has warned him about. He's scared about what he's already seen. Yeah. And we'll get into some of those details shortly, but uh, this poor kid, like he doesn't even have the vocabulary to express what is 
going on, what he's ex- what he's experiencing. And even if he did, he probably in uh, you know on a gut level guesses correctly that no one would believe him. Yep. If he started telling his parents, I just saw a vision of brains and blood on the wall, and then I blinked my eyes and it went away. Okay. Right. Sure. <laughs> sure, kid. We as the audience know that this is his true experience. And we have Holleran's warning as backup that, yeah, somebody with your shine, you're going to see some things and they're going to be disturbing. Yep. And he warns him like, but Danny, they don't necessarily have to become true. Mm-hmm. But the things that he's seen so far are probably past events, not future events. And those are still spooky at the very least. Uh-huh. Now, what's interesting is how King balances this. So you had mentioned that that Danny's excited, but scared. And who wouldn't be excited? Like if I was a six-year-old kid or five-year-old kid and I had a big empty hotel to myself that I could run around in and explore, that would be a blast. Mm-hmm. I think I might enjoy that right oh, now. I was going to say, my I'm, current age. I'm 42 years older than Danny, and I would I would enjoy it very much so. Um, and King balances that so nicely. If I had seen the visions that Danny had seen, I'm sure I would be traumatized for weeks, months, possibly years, maybe the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Five minutes later, they show Danny his room, and he's got a bunk bed. He's like, hey, cool, this is awesome. And that really shows the resiliency of kids, right? Like. They can see something totally awful and within five, 10 minutes be like, oh, did you see that cool cactus rug that I got? Like, that's kick ass. I don't need to worry about the the ghosts or <laughs> the ghosts or the visions. Like, this is, I got a bunk bed? What? Uh-huh. This is awesome. So yeah. I think King is showing us that too, that this kid- He's still a kid. He's still a kid, right. And he's not going to be impacted the same way that somebody else might be when they saw the things that he's seen. Yeah. The next thing I think we should talk about is what I called in our notes, gothic table setting. Ah. So Wikipedia defines gothic fiction as fiction characterized by an environment of fear. Yep. The threat of supernatural events and the intrusion of the past upon the present. Yep. (laughs) Yep. 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 I wonder if any of those things apply to this story. Well, yeah. I mean... When we were preparing for this episode and we talked about the fact that this is a gothic fiction book and we looked up this definition, we realized that we had been talking about the intrusion of the past on the present all of last episode, right? Mm -hmm. All of part one is about these characters looking back at the past and not just these three characters that we've we've just talked about, but also Watson, also Ullman and how they're looking back at the past and seeing how those are coming upon the present. That is such a huge theme in this novel already that we're good. Now we're getting the other pieces, right? The environment of fear and the threat of supernatural events. These are the things that are definitely showing up now. And the definition continues to say it's distinguished from other forms of scary or supernatural stories, such as fairy tales by the specific theme of the present being haunted by the past. The setting typically includes physical reminders of the past, especially through ruined buildings, which stand as a proof of a previously thriving world, which is decaying in the present. And I'll remind you that Jack's job is to be caretaker, to make sure that the hotel does not decay, right? Mm -hmm. That he needs to keep the roof up, that he needs to keep the boiler in shape, that he needs to keep the pipes clean, that he has to make sure the vermin don't come in. The atmosphere is typically claustrophobic. King has already talked about how even though they're in this wide expanse in the Rockies and they can see miles and miles, that they're ultimately trapped in this small to them, hotel, their world has shrunk down to a small place. Mm -hmm. And then this is all speculation, but the definition goes on to say, common plot elements include vengeful persecution, imprisonment, and murder. 
The depiction of horrible events in Gothic fiction often serves as a metaphorical expression of psychological or social conflicts. We're not going to spoil anything, but I wonder if any of those will come up in the rest of the book. We'll have to wait and see, I suppose. Yes. And again, no spoilers here, but it almost feels like King wrote this book by the numbers. Like he he looked up this definition of Gothic fiction and said, you know what? I think I'm going to do one of those and started writing The Shining. Now, of course, there was no Wikipedia when he wrote this, but we have already talked about the influences that bear on King already. Like he is obviously well-versed in in gothic fiction, whether it be sure. Shirley Jackson or Edgar Allan Poe or Nathaniel Hawthorne, even to some extent, like all these folks, like he knows inside and out. So it would be a area that he would be uh, very familiar with. Of course. And we even get a nice little, uh, I think, subtle hint about some of the targets he's aiming at when he says that Wendy is reading a Victoria Holt novel on the drive up to the Overlook. So she hasn't even arrived or seen the hotel herself yet, but she's reading a Victoria Holt novel, and Holt was a pen name of Eleanor Alice Hibbert. And Hibbert wrote under many different pen names and changed which pen name she used according to the genre of that book. Mm. And she used Victoria Holt for her gothic romances. So we've got Wendy reading a gothic story on her way to a hotel that will be the scene of gothic fiction. Yep. So a nice one there, King. So to expand a little bit on, on some of these gothic fiction aspects, Danny's powers allow him to connect past with present in this supernatural way, right? Mm. In a way that like, you know, maybe in another story, it might just be that everybody sees the ghosts or something like that. But here it's Danny's shine that lets him see the horrific things that may have happened in a certain room. And in some ways, it might be his power that's maybe like manifesting these things. Maybe they wouldn't be there, except that he's there as sort of like a, a battery to power it. Yeah. So it could be Danny himself who is the thing that's connecting the past with the present. He is amplifying the gothic nature of this story. Yeah. And, and Halloran has said that he also potentially could see things in the future. And what is the present but the past of the future? So he's also. Oh, you just blew my mind. I know. So he's connecting the past with the present when he connects the present with the future. Ooh. <laughs> so we also couldn't go further in this section without saying that we mentioned Watson, the caretaker, when the hotel is in season. And we learned that Watson's family was the one who built the hotel. I think it's his grandfather, or his great grandfather was the one who, who put it together. And, you know, they ran it, but then they ran into hard times and had to sell it. And if you think about that arc of what gothic fiction is, where the present is a decay of the past and things have fallen apart, you could say that Watson represents that in the fact that mm. he's now a lowly janitor to some extent, when at one point his family was the ones who owned the hotel and were in that position that Ullman is, or even, even higher. So the Watson family has decayed. In status. Correct. Or the fall of the house of Watson. Yes. I thought that that was a great way of putting it. Um, and we'll see if that also continues as we move on. A nice call out to King's inspiration, Poe. Indeed. All right. Um, another great section of this book. I'm really digging it and, and looking forward to it. And all these themes that are coming out are just adding to the already interesting story. But now we have to see if there are any Dark Tower thinnies. 
I'll jump in with this. There really aren't a lot of thinnies, but I just want to say this one time that the shine itself is the thinny. We learn of some of the specifics of Danny's powers, and they are much like Elaine or Alan or Alan, <laughs> however that is correctly pronounced, uh, touch, as it's called in the Dark Tower books. And there are many other King books and characters who at various levels have something akin to or exactly like Danny's power of the Shining. So I would count this the first occurrence for King of this power, as he describes it, as a thinny in and of itself. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, then we've got one one big thinny. This this whole book is a thinny. Yeah, there you go. And, and that'll have to be good enough because I couldn't find any other ones. In the meantime, let's move to yucking it up. Blech. All right. I will start us off. Uh, we've already started to hint at this, but the way the king describes this vision that Danny has, great splashes of dried blood flecked with tiny bits of grayish white tissue clotted the wallpaper, a surrealistic etching of a man's face drawn back in terror and pain, the mouth yawning and half the head pulverized. Yuck. Yeah, that's pretty bad. I suspect we will not have any shortage of yucking it ups in this book moving forward. I also found one which was basically the rest of the paragraph that you just quoted. <laughs> and, and I just wrote, oh, this poor kid again. Danny looked back over his shoulder. The blood stain had returned. Only now it was fresh. It was running. Oh. Yeah. So it's like he's seeing these things and they're not even static. It's like it just happened that this guy blew his head off a moment ago. Yep. So pretty yucky. All right. We want to once again thank our patrons and encourage the rest of you who are listening to support the show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes by becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. And the month that this episode comes out in, we'll be reading 1408, a short story by Stephen King that uh, will be part of our bonus episodes. And you can look forward to our coverage of that short story by becoming a patron. Yeah, it'll be a short story about a haunted hotel room around the same time whether we're reading a story about a haunted hotel. We just can't get enough. Crazy. Sean, is it time for some fun stuff? It definitely is. And there are some really good fun stuff here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this book's great. You want to kick us off? All right. I'm going to go for a simple one. And that is that when Halloran and Danny have their talk, it's in a Plymouth Fury. What? what, what? I know, right? Like, I didn't realize it. And then I was like, wait a minute, Plymouth Fury, this book's supposed to take place in like 78. Were they still making oh. Plymouth Furies then? And sure enough, they were. And in fact, they were making Plymouth Furies like well into the 80s. At that point, they were just generic sedans. They were nothing like Christine. But uh, yeah, the Plymouth Fury was a, a make and model that continued well past the Christine version. I had no idea that that was the case until you and I talked about it, about this particular fact. And yeah, it's, it's like that generic cop car that you see on TV shows and stuff that, or that Mike on Better Call Saul drives because it's so nondescript. Yep. It's a Plymouth Fury or the Dodge equivalent, but Dodge and Plymouth at this point are one company, just with different names on the cars. Yeah, because I was like, wait a minute, this is a rental car. Halloran's got a rental Plymouth Fury, but then I realized, oh, it's just a 
like a literally a generic sedan. Mm-hmm. Probably a hundred of them on the rental car lot. Yeah. That's the midsize standard. Something that I wanted to call out here, just because of the time period that the book was written, I have to keep reminding myself that there was no internet and very few cooking shows at the time. Mm. Because when Halloran gave the family the tour, and he kept kind of nodding to, to Wendy, like, well, you're the one who's probably going to be doing most of the cooking, right? How overwhelmed she was and how, how justifiably overwhelmed she was by this massive commercial kitchen and these massive food stores and even the, the basic ingredients of food, the scale of it, hamburger in big plastic 10-pound bags, 40 chickens, canned hams stacked up to the ceiling and 10 roasts of beef, 10 roasts of pork and a huge leg of lamb. I wouldn't know what to do. I couldn't just make some dinner from an entire leg of lamb. I would have to find out how to do something with that. And without the internet or YouTube to just say, oh, let, let's see how to break down a leg of lamb, because I've never done that before with this yeah. array of butcher tools and stuff like that, I would be at a loss. I, I, I guess maybe I'd cut off a sliver and cook it in a frying pan or something and make a horrible <laughs> mess of things. So how is she supposed to overcome this? I thought this was something interesting to bring up and it only really fit in our fun stuff category, but she seemed to be nervous about it, but okay. And when King was writing this scenario that he's putting his characters in, he seemed to be okay with it. He's not going to kill his characters off by starvation because they couldn't get the the (laughs) ham out of the cans, right? Right. Despite all the references to the Donner Party, they're, they're not going to have to eat each other. There's plenty of food. Right. There's plenty of food. And maybe that's all he was trying to say is like, look, they've got the food. All right. Just don't worry about that. Yeah. And I won't bring it up again. You saying like you wouldn't know what to do with all this food. It sort of reminds me of the Princess Bride when Andre the Giant is fighting the man in black. And he's like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not used to fighting just one person. That's usually half a dozen or a dozen people <laughs> at once. It's, just, it's not the same. It's like, yeah, I don't, know. Tournaments. I don't know how to cook for just three people with 10 roasts of pork just laying around. Like, how mm-hmm. do I do that? Yeah. I mean, I'm a pretty good home cook. I'm pretty handy in the kitchen, but I don't know what to do with a whole half of a pig. No, I wouldn't know how to butcher it (laughs) at all. I just don't. No. If you gave me a whole chicken, I could spatchcock it. Yeah. I could carve it up into like legs and thighs and breasts and cook it. But like, yeah, if you gave me a leg of lamb, I'm like you. I'd just like, I guess, thaw it out and slice pieces off. And yeah, I'd be at a loss. Anyhow. Well, Halloran doesn't have to worry about any of that because his days as a cook for the season are done and he's heading out to the beach and he said, hey, Danny, why don't you join me? We can come out and watch for crabs. And I was hoping that Halloran, all he sees in crabs are and not any lobstrosities because I hate for Halloran to get any fingers chopped off along the way. Yeah, that would be very tragic if anything bad happened to Halloran. Yes. What else you got? Danny's bedroom is decorated in this sort of desert scene. And Wendy and Jack think it's kind of garish. And Allman is quite proud of it, of course. He's proud of everything in the hotel. But Danny sees this and he is in love. And what I thought was that the room is described as with a rug on the floor, with a hideous embroidery of Western sage and cactus, the walls of this smaller room were paneled in real pine. To me, that sounded very much like the setting in The Regulators slash Desperation. Mm. It's like a facsimile of a desert scene of the adobe town. That same facsimile effect 
the illusion of those things is what we experienced in those other books. So I thought that was an interesting connection. I also got a kick out of how Danny thought it was so cool. <laughs> and of course, his parents were just like, oh, yeah. this is terrible. Yeah. When Halloran is introduced to the Torrance family, he's introduced to Jack and Winifred. And he asks, are you a Winnie or a Freddy? And she replies, Wendy. And he's like, well, that's better than the other two. And I agree. Wendy is better than Winnie or Freddy. But did we talk about this last time? Like, Wendy doesn't seem to be the right nickname for Winifred. Like, I've known quite a few Wendy's, and they were either just Wendy or short for Gwendolyn and not Winifred. So that sort of threw me. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be like a direct nickname that flows from the original. It's kind of like Jack for John. Yeah, which never made sense to me. Yeah. We may have talked about this before, and if we ever talk about 112263, I'll rant about it again. But when I was a young kid growing up, I thought that there were a lot more Kennedy brothers than there were. <laughs> because I didn't realize that Jack was a nickname for John. I mean, they're both four letters and Jack has nothing to do with John. So I thought there was a John Kennedy and a Jack Kennedy. And then like, I understood Robert and Bobby, even though, again, that's another one. Like, why isn't it just Rob? Why is it Bobby? Like, but anyhow, I was like, I understood Robert and Bobby. That one was at least familiar with me. So I knew that that was one person, but then Ted being short for Edward, like I thought that those were two more brothers. So I thought there's there this whole mess of Kennedy brothers. When there's, there, there wasn't, but... You thought there were twice as many Kennedy oh, yeah. brothers. That's hilarious. <laughs> there's Jack. I'm like, oh yeah, they totally could have been president for like 40 years straight based on that alone. That's great. I've got one left. And this one, this one just, just made me laugh. We learn about the topiary garden at the hotel and that Jack is responsible or one of his responsibilities is to care for the topiary. And when he's explaining it to Danny, he said, yeah, I got this job recommendation because I used to trim somebody else's topiary garden. And he said, I used to trim a lady's topiary. Wendy put a hand over her mouth and snickered. Looking at her, Jack said, yes, I used to trim her topiary at least once a week. <laughs> and as you faithful listeners may have guessed, both Jay and I snickered a lot when we read that line. A tee-hee, a tee-hee. Oh. Okay, it's time for some other worlds than these. Jay, what have you been up to recently? I recently have been watching the fourth season of the British TV series, The Unforgotten. It's a British detective show, takes place in the modern day, and every case they investigate is something that is a murder that happened like 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And because murder doesn't have a statute of limitations, they are bound to investigate it. And the show is really good. You can really see how police work gets done, mm. where they've got a skeleton. And the skeleton, you can see that the, the, the murder victim once broke her arm. And so they've, there's like a little piece of metal that was used to help to mend the broken bone. And tracing the piece of metal to the hospital where it was attached to help identify the body. Then they can narrow that down to like 20 possible victims or disappearances mm. in a time period. And then they have montages where all of the cops on the team are making phone calls to these families. Families who have lost a family member, you know, like decades ago and have found different ways of coping with that. And now they get a call from the police. And all but one of them are going to be able or basically be shown like false hope mm. and then let down. But this is how these types of things would really 
work. So there's enough detail that makes this show feel realistic. And I've just been watching the most recent season and really enjoying it. I've been watching them on Amazon Prime. So that's the unforgotten. Cool. There's actually a connection between your other worlds and these and mine. So I just finished reading a book called The Five Decembers by James Kestrel. And James Kestrel's a pseudonym for an author who has actually been praised by Stephen King for his horror novels. But The Five Decembers is about a police detective who also does a lot of the, like the hard work of doing the detective work, right? Mm. Knocking on doors, going into old libraries to read old newspapers, getting into file systems at the Office of Public Records. And he is in charge of investigating a double murder, a Japanese girl and the nephew of an admiral in Hawaii. And so he finds the two of them butchered and needs to investigate who killed them and why. And in doing his detective work, he actually has to go to Hong Kong to follow up a lead. A lot more happens after that, but it's a great setup for a book. Hmm. Uh, published by Hard Case Crime, which is one of my favorite publishers of crime and mystery novels. That's The Five Decembers by James Kestrel. King has contributed to uh, Hard Case Crime on two or three occasions at this point. I think it might be three now. And we'll put that information on both of our other worlds in these in the show notes if you want to follow up on that. But for now, this will be the end of this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you Sean, lo- let me interrupt you for a second there whoa, about whoa, the merch. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Just want to remind our listeners that this merch is available and there's a lot of cool stuff. Just yesterday, I was wearing one of our All Things Serve the Beam turtle t-shirts, and we also have other cool things like a pint glass with our logo on it, and we have a sticker with a picture of the pint glass with our logo on it if you want to get into the meta stuff. So check out our merch. It's a lot of fun, and it'll support the show. Jay, I must imagine as you were walking down the street in your neighborhood wearing that shirt that there must have been people just sort of fawning all over you and and asking, where can I get the shirt? Where can I get the shirt? Oh, yeah. I didn't hear the end of it. And then I said, I am Jay Russo of Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. And their eyes light up. They're like, it's you? I should have known from your voice. And it's so cool meeting fans everywhere I go. Did they ask, where is Sean? No, they didn't even know. <laughs> I gotta get my I gotta get myself a shirt. You gotta get a shirt. Otherwise, no one knows who the heck you are. All right. Well, if you like the show, check out our merch and also rate us on Apple Podcasts. And to support the show, visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. Next episode, join us as we cover the shining, part three, the wasp's nest, chapters fourteen through eighteen. So we're not reading all of part three chapters 14 through 18 for our next episode. Got it. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Why do I have family capitalized? They're a very important family. <laughs>